Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Michael Cremo. He is the author of The Forbidden Archaeologist, Human Devolution, Forbidden Archaeology, along with Richard Thompson, and The Hidden History of the Human Race, along with Richard Thompson. I call Michael the Columbo of archaeology. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Columbo, he was an investigator that would crack any case, find any lies, search out any details. He was the master of investigation. I consider Michael Cremo not only a great author and researcher, but somebody who is cracking every lie, every case, and demonstrating that archaeology is not telling us the truth about our human origins. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome the great Michael Cremo to its Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Good morning, Kim, and good morning to all your listeners. Thank you so much for what you've written here. I look forward to reading your other books. I have completed The Forbidden Archaeologist. I think I understand why you're called The Forbidden Archaeologist, but I want to hear from you. Why do you call yourself The Forbidden Archaeologist? Because I deal with a lot of discoveries that mainstream archaeology simply doesn't want to deal with. You know, according to the mainstream theories, human beings like us first came into existence about 100,000 or perhaps 150,000 years ago. And before that, we are told, there were no human beings like us. There were more primitive, ape-like human ancestors. And if you go back further in time, there were just some primitive apes and monkeys. And if you go back further in time, uh, just some primitive mammals. So I deal with archaeological evidence showing that human beings like us have been present on Earth for many millions of years, going all the way back to the very beginnings of the history of life on Earth. And this evidence takes the form of human bones, human artifacts, and human footprints, many, many millions of years old. And these things are reported in the original scientific literature, but they're not in the textbooks because of what I call a process of knowledge filtration that operates in the world of science. So that's what I mean by forbidden archaeology. You know, if we looked at archaeology as a big museum, we would see that the public is only let into one small room of that museum, and there they will only see the discoveries that go along with the current theories of human origins. But there are other rooms in that big museum of archaeology, rooms with locks on the doors. So what I've tried to do in my work is take the locks off the doors, open up those rooms, and let people see what's really there. And what's there is a lot of evidence that contradicts the current theories of human origins. There's a lot of evidence showing that human beings like us have been on Earth for millions and millions of years. I love the part in the book where you talk about the California gold mine and how Darwin's ideas influenced the treatment of evidence here at Table Mountain. Can you share a tidbit of that? Because that's very exciting since we both live in California, but also what was found. Yes, this, these were very, very fascinating discoveries. During the gold rush days in the 19th century, 
miners came to California to get the gold. And to get the gold, they were digging tunnels into the sides of mountains in the Sierra Nevada mountains in the gold mining region. One of these mountains was Table Mountain in Tuolumne County in uh, California. And deep inside the tunnels, the miners were finding in the solid rock human bones and human artifacts. They found, uh, for example, many obsidian spear points. They found stone mortars and pestles. And they found these things not just in one location, but in many different locations in the California gold mining region. And what makes these discoveries so interesting to me is that the human bones and the human artifacts were found in layers of rock that modern geologists tell us are 50 million years old and older. And this just completely contradicts all of the current evolutionary theories of human origins. Now, these discoveries were all collected by Dr. J.D. Whitney, who was the chief government geologist of California uh, during that time. And he wrote a massive book about these discoveries that was published by Harvard University in the year 1880. But we just don't hear about these discoveries anymore today because of the process of knowledge filtration. There was another scientist who lived at the same time as Whitney, Dr. William Holmes, who was an anthropologist working at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. And he, he wrote, if Dr. Whitney had understood the theory of human evolution, he would not have published that report. In other words, he would have known that the facts could not possibly be true. Human beings could not possibly have existed millions of years ago because they hadn't evolved yet, according to the theory of evolution. So according to Holmes, the, the reports of Whitney should simply be forgotten. So, and that's what happened. However, some of the artifacts from the California gold mines are still in the collection of the Museum of Anthropology at the University of California at Berkeley. And a few years ago, I was a consultant for a television documentary called The Mysterious Origins of Man that aired on NBC. And the producer had read my book, Forbidden Archaeology, and he wanted to include some of the cases from the book in his documentary. So I told them about these California gold mine discoveries and told them to go to that museum at the University of California. He went there, but the museum officials refused to allow him to see or film those artifacts. Because of the date of them? Well, they gave all kinds of excuses. Uh, first, they said, well, um, you're, you're making a television program, you probably have a very tight deadline, and uh, we, we just wouldn't have time you know, to, to search through our collections and find these things. But he told them, no, I've got several months, I've got you know, a few months to do the program, could you kindly have a look? And then they uh, made some other excuses that 
this wasn't the normal work of their staff. They would have to pay their staff overtime salary. They, so the producer said, well, I'll pay all the expenses. That's no problem. And finally, they just said, no. I thought that was fascinating. I thought it was very telling, including the people that found out about this that tried to get the FCC to block NBC from airing it. Talk about that. Well, yes. Well, well, see, eventually we, we did find some photographs that were taken of the objects in, in, at the time of Dr. Whitney. So we did have some images to show on the program. But it's interesting, when a Darwinist scientist in America found out that NBC was going to show this program to the American people, they became very, very angry because these scientists have a monopoly in the education system. Only the Darwinian theory of evolution can be taught as an explanation of human origins in the education system in the United States and most other countries in the world. So they were very upset that children would go home and turn on their TV and see something on a major American television network that directly contradicted what they were being told in their classrooms, you know, by their science teachers. So these scientists were very angry with NBC for for airing this program. They tried to stop NBC from showing it. They didn't succeed. It was shown, and it was very popular. So NBC decided to show it again. And uh, these same scientists then tried to get the president of the General Electric Company, which owns NBC, right. stop NBC from showing the program. They tried to organize boycotts of the sponsors of the show, and uh, they made all kinds of attempts to again stop NBC from showing it. And again, they didn't succeed, which made them really angry. So that's when they went, uh, these scientists, these Darwinist scientists, went to the Federal Communications Commission, which is the agency of the government that uh, licenses and regulates the television broadcasting industry. And they, they tried to get the FCC to censure NBC, investigate NBC, force NBC to broadcast primetime public apologies for having shown the program. Uh, they also wanted the FCC to fine NBC millions of dollars for having shown the program. Frightening. Absolutely frightening. It means there's a lockdown on antiquity, isn't there? Well, yes. It does show that there's a lot at stake here. And now I'm happy to say that the government didn't do any of those things. The FCC didn't do any of those things. But I, I, I think it's really important to understand that there was an organized effort by scientists who support the Darwinian theory of evolution to do all these things. What are they afraid of, aside from being wrong? Well, I think what they're afraid of is new theories of human origins that would have a spiritual component to them, because most of the alternatives to the Darwinian theory of evolution involve some kind of higher intelligence having something to do with the origin of species on this planet. Uh, there's uh, the, the alternative theories tend to involve non-material principles. So they, they really don't like that. And there's actually quite a bit at stake here. Uh, you know, the goals that we set for ourselves individually and collectively 
depend to a large extent on our concept of self, who we think we are. For example, if I think I'm an American man, that's how I behave because that's my identity. So through the monopoly they have in the education system, the Darwinists have been able to dictate to people their sense of identity, and they've been giving them a very materialistic concept of self. They tell people, like in the words of Richard Dawkins, a very famous evolutionist, we are robot chemical machines designed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. So, you know, according to this view, we're, we're just machines made of matter. We're robot chemical vehicles in competition with other robot chemical vehicles for survival. It's a very materialistic concept of the self. And if under under the influence of this, it's, it's no surprise that most people in the world today think that to produce and consume more and more material things is the main purpose of human life. And this generates a lot of wealth, but it also generates environmental degradation. Misery on top of it. Financial crises, uh, intense conflict for the control of material resources. And But there's a tremendous amount of wealth being generated, and people, there are forces in society that don't want to see that change. If people had a more spiritual concept of the self, a more genuinely spiritual concept of the self, they might decide to try to live a little more simply and naturally, to try to produce the material necessities of life in a more simple, natural, and efficient way, which would mean less material production and consumption, less profits, less tax money. So there are a lot of less money going into the pockets of scientists. Uh, it's, it's, uh, so I think there's a, a whole lot at stake here. How has your work been suppressed in any way, or has it? Well, uh, one way that it was suppressed is by what we were just talking about. Uh, one of the concerns of those who were trying to block that NBC television special was that they knew that I had some role in it, that my research for Forbidden Archaeology was going to be featured in that NBC television special, and they didn't like that. And that's one reason why they tried to suppress that show. So that's one example of it. There are other examples. Uh, My books are now in about 20 different languages, so I get invitations to speak at universities all over the world. So a few years ago, I was invited to Russia, and I lectured in universities all over Russia. And in one city, professors from the university had invited me to speak. Uh, It was the the Tumen State University in Russia. And, And the day before my lecture, the president of the university canceled the lecture because of pressure from scientists inside and outside the university who didn't want me to be speaking, speaking there, presenting you know, the, the kind of evidence that I talk about in Forbidden Archaeology. Are you telling me you went all the way there and then you couldn't speak? 
well, th- this is this is one city. I, I was speaking a lot of different cities, and I did speak successfully. But in this one particular city, uh, there was an attempt to stop uh, my lecture by the president of the university. So then the professors who had invited me tried to get the president of the university to change his mind, but he wouldn't do it because of this pressure from these outside and inside groups who didn't want me to speak against the theory of evolution in a university. And and then, so these professors who had invited me, they then went to the local branch of the Russian Academy of Sciences, and they spoke to the director there, and he said, well, he can speak here. And nobody will put any pressure on 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 me to stop his lecture. So I did give the lecture there, and they had buses bring students and professors from the university. And the professors who organized the lecture told me that more people came than would have come if the lecture had been held at the university itself. So yes, there are attempts to suppress my work, but in a lot of cases they backfire and they simply wind up drawing more attention to it. I had a similar experience in in Denmark. I was speaking at uh, the University of Aarhus, which is one of the big universities there, and professors were outraged that I was being allowed to speak at the university, you know, supporters of the Darwinian theory of evolution in particular. And uh, they were calling me a dangerous man. So there were headlines in the newspaper saying, is this man dangerous? So, yeah, there there are attempts to uh, try to stop my lectures, to prevent uh, some some of my presentations from going out on the media they they generally backfire and generally just result in more people becoming interested in what I have to say. Can you talk a little bit about Virginia? Is it McIntyre? Well, Virginia Steen McIntyre is an American geologist who I know personally. She's a wonderful woman. And when she was just beginning her career as a geologist after she'd gotten her Ph.D., she was invited to date an archaeological site in Mexico. Uh, there was a, a site in Mexico called Huayatlaco where some American and Mexican archaeologists had discovered human artifacts. And, of course, they wanted to know how old these things were. So the way that you find out how old they are is you determine how old is the formation in which they're found. So they called in a team of geologists, including Virginia Steen McIntyre, to do this. So Virginia Steen McIntyre and her colleagues used four different scientific methods to date the site, and they came up with an age of over 250,000 years. But the archaeologists said, that's impossible. Human beings capable of making these artifacts didn't exist anywhere in the world at that time because they hadn't evolved yet. So it can't possibly be this old. So uh, they refused to publish the age for the site given by Virginia Steen McIntyre and her colleagues. So then Virginia Steen McIntyre and her colleagues decided to independently publish the age for the site. But when they did that, they experienced an extreme negative backlash 
from their colleagues in the scientific world. They were very upset that they had published something that contradicted the Darwinian theory of evolution. And up to this point in time, Virginia Steen McIntyre had been a rising star in her profession. Uh, she was getting all kinds of grants. She was being invited to speak at big international conferences. She was a rising star in her profession. But when she published something that contradicted the Darwinian theory of evolution, she she was called a maverick, a publicity seeker, a troublemaker, and her career was effectively finished. She lost a teaching position that she held at a university. You know, her her grant money dried up. She her she was just treated very very badly. Now she remained silent for a number of years, but then I found out about her work and I wrote about it in Forbidden Archaeology, my book Forbidden Archaeology. And partly because of that, there was uh, some publicity about her and her work. And as a result of that, there was a wealthy philanthropist here in America who was interested in archaeology who decided to fund some new research at uh, the site. Eventually, I think she's going to be vindicated, but she's a very brave woman, uh, somebody I very much admire. I think that's another example of what you're talking about. How about Thomas? Is it Demir? Well, Thomas Demir is a scientist I've uh, met once in San Diego, and I had heard about some discoveries that were made by a paleontologist in the Anza Borrego Desert. And this paleontologist had found some mammoth bones with human butchering marks on them. And the bones were dated and they turned out to be around 700,000 or 800,000 years old. And according to current theories, there shouldn't be any any uh, human beings anywhere in the world 700 or 800,000 years ago. Not any human beings like us, anyways, because they hadn't evolved yet, supposedly. And what to speak of being present in in North America, because the current theories say there, there there were no human beings in North America any earlier than about 20,000 years ago. So, uh, so I had heard about these discoveries made by this paleontologist in the Anza Borrego Desert, and I'd heard that he was planning to publish them. So I was researching another topic, and I, I went to... Uh, the Museum of Man in, in uh, San Diego, which is where this uh, Dr. Demare works. And I mentioned to him the, these discoveries that had been made by this paleontologist of these uh, mammoth, mammoth bones with human butchering marks about 700,000 or 800,000 years old. And he said, oh, we're aware of that. And we're aware that he's writing a report, but it's never going to get through peer review. And I thought that was important to mention because several months ago I did a segment with Gavin Menzies who wrote 1421 and 1434 about how Columbus did not discover America and 
how he had the maps. And we did a show also with a climatologist from Canada about how peer review actually blocks the new discoveries from getting through and almost guards the gate of new knowledge and discovery. And I see it here, too. Yes, that can happen. They make up their minds in advance before they even see, you know, they just heard about it, but they already made up their minds in advance. This can't possibly be true, so it's never going to get by peer review. So that can often happen. Um, For those among your listeners who don't really know what peer review means, it means scientific journals, scientific publications, if they get an article that comes in, they give it to some scientists who remain anonymous to look at. And if they approve it, then it gets published. If they don't approve it, it it doesn't uh, get published. And in, in one sense, it sounds good, but in practice, an editor, you know, he, he knows what the different reviewers' opinions are. And, you know, if he... And he knows just if he doesn't want an article to be published, he knows just who to give it to, uh, who will who will spike it, you know, who will make sure that it doesn't get a favorable recommendation to print. So that's part of the the knowledge filtering process that goes on in the world of science. So that's one way in which it operates. It could also operate in terms of uh, giving grant money or giving a person a job as a professor at a university. It, it can be very bad if, if, if somebody has an opening you know, for a professorship, if a university has an opening for a professorship, generally there are hundreds of applicants. And if it turns out that some of those applicants are uh, in any way connected with anti-evolutionary ideas, they're finished. They'll never get a, a job at an American university or any other university in the world, practically speaking. So unless you publish on your own, outside of the university setting, you can't introduce new knowledge. Uh, that can happen in, in, in some areas. Now, some areas of science are more open than others. But this theory of evolution has been giving a sacrosanct status in the academic world such that it simply cannot be challenged. And there are other sensitive areas also where the normal scientific uh, procedures simply don't apply. There are certain, there are certain theories that are so well, so well established in, in the minds of their supporters that it would be irresponsible to try to criticize them or... Is it a kind of blasphemy? Yes, that that's what it, it amounts to. And you'd be burned at the stake <laughs> if you criticize some of these theories, not literally, but figuratively. So really, this indoctrination process starts when we're kids in the education environment. Well, it does because... The supporters of the Darwinian theory of evolution now have a government-enforced monopoly in the education system in this country and most countries around the world. It's, it's actually illegal to present any alternative. Are you serious? You mean illegal? Yes, because anytime anyone tries to do that, 
they, for example, most people in this country actually do not accept the Darwinian theory of evolution. Oh, about 50 to 60 percent of the American people think that human beings existed on Earth in the beginning in their present form. They didn't evolve from apes. Uh, about 50 to 60 percent of the American people believe that. About 25 to 30 percent of the American people, according to Gallup surveys, believe that, well, God created the human beings, but he did it by evolution, by evolving them from apes. And only about, but you know, the scientists who support the theory of evolution don't believe there was any God guiding it. You know, that that is something they just oppose completely. There are only about 10% of the American people who actually believe that an unguided process of evolution led to the human species. And 10% of the people don't care one way or the other. So most people don't accept the Darwinian theory of evolution as it's being presented in the science classrooms all over the country. But only that idea can be presented in the classrooms. And I think that is something that needs to change because there are scientists who support alternatives to the Darwinian theory of evolution. There are scientists who support the idea of intelligent design. There are scientists who support various types of creationism, which is a, a dirty word, a blasphemous word in today's scientific world, but it hasn't always been like that. Many of the world's greatest scientists have seen some role for God in introducing order and complexity and law into the affairs of material reality. And I think those are decisions individual scientists should make themselves. But what's happened is, is that the supporters of the Darwinian theory of evolution are now in the majority in the scientific world. Those who are proposing alternatives are very much in the minority. They are there, however. But the majority has used its influence with government to get the alternatives excluded from the education systems. From time to time, people in a city or a state or uh, a region will try to get alternatives to evolution in the science classrooms. They will do this through local school boards, uh, uh, state school boards, district school boards. And whenever they try to do that, the supporters of the theory of evolution will get a federal lawsuit that will overturn these attempts to get alternatives into the classrooms. And I think that's very bad for a democratic free society. Is it? Yes, it is. Because First of all, no, I mean, do you think it's a democratic free society if there's an entire lockdown on knowledge? Well, that's right. I mean, if, if it's allegedly a democratic free society, then we wouldn't tolerate our government telling us we could only buy one kind of car or we could only listen to uh, one radio station or only worship God according to the tenets of one religion. Uh, but we're 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 allowing the government now to give a monopoly to a group of scientists. So it's all about funding, really. It's about being able to perpetuate the funding, towing the line, right? Yes, 
And if you don't do that, then you're not getting funded or you're being released from university teaching. That's correct. And if you're proposing any alternative, you're not going to be allowed to do it. That's just the way things are now. And I think the the better policy uh, would be that the alternative should be there. I would say, okay, let's let's admit today most scientists accept the Darwinian theory of evolution. Uh, that's a fact. All right, but it's also a fact there are some researchers who don't support that theory. This is also a fact. So I would say, all right, if you're going to have a biology textbook, give the majority of pages in it to the Darwinian theory of evolution, but the uh, some percentage of the page should be given to those who are opposed to that theory and who are proposing alternatives. And this should be done in a neutral, objective way. And then let students make up their own minds about these things. I think that would be better than the current system of just giving whoever the majority is the right to exclude all the other ideas uh, from the curriculum. And I would also extend that also to the grant, you know, the government money that's going to fund scientific research and positions in state-supported universities. And I'm talking here, when I'm talking about the education system and professorships and grant money, I'm talking about the public, state and government-supported education systems, universities, and grant-giving agencies. I would say if, if somebody wants to have a private school where they raise their own money and want to teach their own ideas, that's fine. Say if the supporters of the Darwinian theory of evolution want to raise their own money and have their own private schools where they teach only their ideas, that's fine. Or if there's some uh, denominations, religious denominations that want to have their private schools and teach only their ideas, that's fine with me. If they're atheists that want to have their own schools and teach only atheistic ideas, fine. But when we're talking about the public school systems that are taking money from all the people, tax money from all the people, and when we're talking about universities, state universities, that are operating on tax money and federal money, when we're talking about scientific grant-giving institutions that are distributing tax money from all the people, I think they have an obligation to represent the diversity that's actually there in the scientific world and among the general public. They shouldn't be allowed to give all the grant money to just one group of scientists. They shouldn't allow all the professorships to go to this one group. They shouldn't allow the curriculum to be determined in the public schools by this one group, even though they're the majority. I think there has to be kind of a bill of scientific bill of rights you know, to protect the rights of the minorities in these cases. One of the things I'm excited about with archaeology is that you're in this forensic realm of evidence. But I know that in the book you talked about how there are people who fake discoveries. What do you do about that? Or what is being done about that? Well, people can fake discoveries, but that doesn't, you know, just like people can counterfeit money, but that doesn't mean that all counterfeit, all money is counterfeit. Right. You know, that that's So, yes, there have been hoaxes 
in the history of archaeology. For example, there was Piltdown Man, which was one of the supposed missing links that was discovered in England in the early 20th century. And it was in the textbooks for 50 years before it was discovered it was a hoax. Uh, I mean, what the discovery was, it was a, a human-like skull and an ape-like jaw that were put together. Said, so, okay, this is half man, half ape. This is a missing link between apes and humans. So it was, it was given as proof of evolution for years and years and years until it was finally discovered that it was a very elaborate hoax by someone with very high level with a very high level of scientific training to do that to make this ape jaw look like a fossil fossil jaw to make the skull look like it was a fossil and bury them and discover them and publish them in the scientific literature so that turned out to be a hoax. So, but here's here's another thing that can happen. Anytime that there is some discovery, some genuine discovery that contradicts the theory of evolution, they can just simply say, oh, it's a hoax. It must be a hoax. There have been hoaxes. This has to be a hoax. And I think that is not a very scientific way in which to proceed. It sounds like a lot of the field is extremely irrational, along with the theory of evolution. There's an irrationality with it. Why do you think that's so, and do you think that's so? In some cases, yes. There are all kinds of scientists. Some are more rational than others. I've found in, in my dealings that the scientific world can be you know, broken into three basic groups. The first I would call the fundamentalist evolutionist. And I believe they accept that theory not for purely scientific reasons, but because it confirms their prior belief in atheism and materialism. That's that's what I think. It's more like an ideology for them, and uh, they don't want to hear any criticism of the theory of evolution. They don't want to hear anything I have to say about it. They don't want any anybody to hear what I have to say about it. So, yes, there is a kind of irrationality in that group. And there is another group, a larger group, who may presently be supporters of the current theories, but at least they're open-minded enough to be willing to listen to alternatives. I think that's an important first step, because if ideas are going to change, People have to be willing to listen to new ideas and evidence that contradicts the current ideas. So that's another group who I think are more or less rational. And then among that group, there are a, a very small group who have actually changed their ideas and come to accept some alternatives to the current Darwinian theory of evolution. They're very small in number these days, but uh, that's how these things work. When Darwin first started promoting his idea, he was in the minority. So sometimes these things happen. I like also in your book how you talk about how there's always a bias. Nobody comes in totally neutral and that you have to be upfront about your bias. What is your bias? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Everybody does have a point of view, a perspective, which should be acknowledged. And I'm very open in acknowledging that my 
perspective on human origins is influenced by my studies in the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, which talk of human civilizations having been present on Earth for many millions of years, which propose alternative theories of human origins based on consciousness rather than matter. Uh, they propose the idea we didn't evolve up from matter, but we've devolved or come down from a level of pure consciousness. So, you know, I'm very open in acknowledging what kinds of ideas are governing my approach to archaeology and the whole question of human human origins. And everybody has to do some knowledge filtering. You know, that's a fact. You know, we don't just accept anything anybody tells us about anything. You know, we, we, we do have to have some standards for evalu evaluating testimony and evidence and things like that. The problem comes in, you know, I mean, the ideal thing would be that all people with their different perspectives and biases would agree on some common standards of evidence and judge evidence fairly by those common standards. That would be the ideal thing. But what happens in science sometimes is that there's a differential application of standards. And if you're in the majority and you're in a dominant position, you may be able to impose your standards on everyone. That can happen, and that's unfortunate. It's sort of like, say, a, a building inspector may have a book of codes you know, for building construction, for the electrical, the plumbing, everything like that. And if he applies those standards, you know, the building inspector implies the standards equally to all cases that he investigates, that would be good. But if he starts going around treating his friends very leniently, you know, even though they may have a building that isn't up to code, he says, no problem. And then he might go to someone else who he doesn't like and apply the same standards in a very strict way, so strict that nobody could get a building approved, that would be wrong. And unfortunately, I think that's the, the situation in the scientific world today. Um, those who support the Darwinian theory of evolution are now in the majority, and they use that in order to differentially apply the standards for evaluating evidence in such a way that they treat evidence that supports their theory very leniently and evidence that contradicts their theory they, they treat according to an impossibly strict standard that no evidence could ever pass. You know, so, so, yes, that, that does go on. You talked a little bit about your meeting with Stephen Schwartz and Ingo Swan and your remote viewing work. Did you learn remote viewing? Well, apparently remote viewing is an ability that we all have. And the reason I was 
interest in this whole topic has to do with my whole approach to the question of human origins. You know, as I say in my book, Human Devolution, before we even ask the question, where did human beings come from, we should first of all understand what a human being is. And today, many scientists will say a human being is simply a machine made of molecules. That's all there is to it. But I would say if we look carefully at all the evidence, we'll see, yes, uh, matter, chemical elements, that's part of what a human being is. But beyond that, there's a subtle mind element with some very unusual paranormal powers, like remote viewing. And then beyond that, there's a conscious self that can exist completely apart from matter. Uh, so this remote viewing is a power, I believe, that is part of the mental equipment of every human being. It's very exciting. I want to learn it. I interviewed Paul Smith, who was with the Stargate Project, and the author, Lynn Buchanan, also of The Seventh Sense. It was so fascinating. And I would imagine remote viewing can be utilized to look at archaeology as well. Yes, that's true. Stephen Schwartz was in the 1970s and 80s, a member of the Stanford Research Institute. And he was one of the people who was involved in the government remote viewing program. The American government during the 1970s and 80s began using remote viewing in the military and civilian intelligence agencies. Let me just say to the audience, remote viewing is a tool and a methodology to locate any data, any event, any information, any experience that was had in the past, the present, and for really good remote viewers in the future. So we are all connected in to an infinite timeline, but it's all recorded and we can access that through this protocol. Yeah, that's also doesn't work just through time, but just at distance, you know, for example, Correct. if you want to know what's going on on a Russian military base in some underground building they've got that you can't see with a satellite, these remote viewers were able to do that. And that's why the government spent millions of dollars on this program. They still may be doing it. They haven't admitted it. It's oh, I think they're still doing it. <laughs> it's, been, it's been admitted that they did it in the 70s and 80s, 1970s and 1980s. That's documented that they did that. And Stephen Schwartz was part of that. And then after he left the government programs, he started doing it uh, for other purposes, including archaeology. You know, he was part of a project which located, by remote viewing, some archaeological discoveries off the coast of Egypt, underwater, off the coast of the city of Alexandria. So I happened to meet Stephen Schwartz, in Montreal at a conference where we were both speakers. I was speaking about my work. He was speaking about his. And you know, I, I went to his lecture on remote viewing, and he was saying that this is an ability that we actually all have, and it can be developed. So then there was a workshop, and I went to the workshop you know, just to see what it was like. And he did a very interesting experiment there. There were about a hundred of us in the workshop and he selected three people and told them go anywhere in the city within a 15 minute driving radius. In other words, 
get in the car, drive for 15 minutes, stop somewhere. And then he said, when you get to that place, try to mentally send the image of where you are back here to the hotel. And he also gave them, uh, as they went out, a video camera and told them to videotape the place. So they went out and started driving away. For the next 15 minutes, we got some instruction from Stephen Schwartz about how to clear our minds in order to be be receiving the imagery that was going to be projected at us. So, uh, so after 15 minutes, you know, we began, he told us to start recording, writing down whatever imagery came into our minds. He said, don't analyze it, don't judge it, just write it down. So I did that. The first image that came to my mind was candle flames and red glass holders. And uh, my mind was really trying to reject that image. I was convinced the people had gone to a bowling alley, you know, somehow or other. That's that's what I thought. But but I I decided, okay, no, I'm I'm just going to do this the way it's supposed to be done. I'm just going to write down the imagery as it comes to me. I'm not going to criticize it. I'm not going to judge it. So I did that, and we were taken through a visualization where we were asked to to record what we saw when we looked up what we saw when we looked down to the left, to the right, front, back. So I did it all, starting with the candles and the red glass holders. And then after some time, the people came back. And the videotape was played through a a screen. And the first image that came onto the screen was... Uh, candle flames and red glass holders. Wow. And I was shocked. I believe in this stuff, and I was shocked. And I'd gotten it right. You know, I I described what appeared to be a cathedral, and they had gone to a cathedral. It was really amazing. And a lot of people in the room got it right. Sitting next to me was another researcher named Rupert Sheldrake. I love him. Oh, my God. He's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, so he's he's kind of into these consciousness studies sorts of things. He wrote about the morphogenic field. That's absolutely and the mind. Right. So we were both there, and we both went through this exercise. He also got it right, you know, basically. So it was a demonstration that this remote viewing ability is something that we all have. Now, like any ability, mathematics or music, some people have it to a greater extent than others, but it is something that we all have, although we may not be aware of it. And this experience that I had in Montreal, which I talk about in depth in my book, The Forbidden Archaeologist, was for me a very meaningful experience because, as I said, I believe in these things. But even to me, it was surprising that I myself had this ability to a greater extent than I myself believed. What led you to get involved in this kind of work? Well, the reason I got involved in this forbidden archaeology work is something that comes from the way I was brought up. I was born in a military family. My father was a military intelligence officer. So for, for a long time when I was growing up, I would be moving from place to place 
in the United States to Hawaii to Europe to all kinds of different places. So I, I grew up understanding that there are different people in different places who see things in different ways. I think it opened me up to the idea that there's more than one way to look at things. For example, when I was five or six years old in, in my first and second grade classes in Hawaii, you know, I had little classmates who were Hawaiian, Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, Samoan, Hawaiian, uh, Caucasian, um, a, 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 Black American. I I had all kinds of classmates with all kinds of different cultural backgrounds and perspectives. And I think it was these experiences that opened me up to the idea that there are different ways of looking at things. And another thing, because of my father's profession as an intelligence officer, I learned there's such a thing as hidden knowledge. There, there is knowledge that people are not always aware of, you know, whether it's government knowledge or military knowledge or, by extension, scientific knowledge. So I, I did learn there, there could be such a thing as forbidden knowledge, hidden knowledge. So as I grew older and was... Uh, confronted as I moved into my 20s with finding my own path in life, you know, I began exploring different wisdom systems and cultures. I'd become a little bit disillusioned with the university education system and uh, what it was offering. I, I decided there have to be other ways of getting at truth. And I came upon the ancient Sanskrit writings of India and the spiritual culture of India and became attracted to that. I'm not saying that's the only place to get truth, but you know, it's like if you're going to buy a computer or a mobile phone. There's so many different brands. Eventually, you've got to choose one that works for you. So, so I, I decided that what I was learning from the ancient wisdom system of India was good for me. You know, the idea of having a spiritual guide, a guru, of practicing meditation and yoga, of adopting uh, belief in reincarnation and things like that. This was all very good for me. But as I studied those ancient Sanskrit writings of India, I could see they were talking about human civilization on this planet going back many, many millions of years, all the way back to the beginnings of the history of life on Earth. So I began to think about that. Is, is that really true? It's also mentioned in other wisdom traditions, the Bible, the Koran, practically every ancient wisdom tradition says human beings have been here since the beginning. So I began thinking, is is that true, or is it just some mythology? If it's true, there should be some physical evidence to support it. And that's what got me looking into the history of archaeology. And when I looked at the textbooks of archaeology, I didn't see any evidence for extreme human antiquity. 
But when I started going beyond the textbooks to the original scientific reports in many different languages from the time of Darwin all the way up to the present, I began seeing there were many reports of archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity, many more than I suspected could possibly exist. So I collected those all together and with my co-author, Richard Thompson, put them together in the book Forbidden Archaeology. So that's what got me started. Because you do have a tiger by the tail, you know. Yeah, in the beginning, you know, I, I just thought, I didn't know what I might find. I thought I might find a few interesting cases and write a short article about them and then just go on to something else. But as I started getting into the research, I did eight weeks of research. I found a few cases, but those cases led to other cases. So the eight weeks turned into eight months, and then the eight months turned into eight years. I actually did eight years of research for the book Forbidden Archaeology as one case just led to another. Colombo, how did you support your work to come up with the compilation, the synthesis of Forbidden Archaeology, which is, what, a thousand pages? Well, fortunately, you know, I'm a member of a, a spiritual community, so I, the spiritual community that I'm, a, that I'm a part of supports you know, the kind of research that I'm doing. So I was very fortunate. How extraordinary. Are you talking about the Bhakti Vendata Vendata? Institute? Yes. Part of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Uh, My spiritual teacher, my guru, was very interested in these things. So he established that institute in order to carry out research uh, giving Vedic perspectives on different scientific questions. So I wound up focusing on the areas of science that relate to human origins, you know, archaeology, anthropology, and so on. You're a member of the History of Science Society, the World Archaeological Congress, the Philosophy of Science Association, and the European Association of Archaeologists as well as an associate member of the Bhakti Vedanta Institute. How are they, um, are they all very cutting-edge institutes or societies and organizations that allow for new knowledge, or are some of them really very conservative? They're actually pretty open. What I did, I wanted to communicate my ideas to a lot of different audiences. I wanted to communicate my ideas to the general public. I also wanted to communicate my ideas to the academic and scientific worlds. So uh, what I did was I joined various academic and scientific societies that uh, are involved in topics that relate to my research, like history of science, archaeology, and so on. Um, The For example, I I joined uh, the World Archaeological Congress, and once you're a member, then you receive invitations to conferences that they organize. So, for example, the first scientific conference that I presented my work at was a meeting of the World Archaeological Congress that was held in New Delhi, India in 1994. The World Archaeological Congress is 
one of the world's largest international organizations of archaeologists, and it's open to various perspectives. Uh, it, it, you know, in the 19th century and early 20th century, you know, archaeology was mostly carried out from a Western perspective, and the Western countries had dominated all the other countries in the world, and so, but. In the post-colonial times, there's been more interest among archaeologists in understanding, well, what are the perspectives of on archaeology and human origins from other other cultures and points of view besides you know, the modern Western point of view? So I found these organizations to be open to these things, and I've been able to present papers at conferences organized by these academic and scientific organizations. So as I was saying a little bit earlier in the show, the world of science isn't monolithic. There are some fundamentalist Darwinist supporters of the current theories of human origins and antiquity who are very, very much opposed to what I do. They don't want to hear me. They don't want anybody else to hear me. But there are more open-minded scientists who may be supporters of the current theories, but they're at least willing to listen to alternatives. And it's scientists in that group who have invited me to speak at these institutions and organizations, who've accepted the papers that I propose to present at their conferences. But that's not the only audience that I try to reach. I think it's important to stay in touch with all types of audiences. So the academic and scientific world is one of my audiences. The general public is one of my audiences. And then I also speak to alternative science researchers who are interested in such things as UFOs and uh, parapsychology and things of that sort. So I stay in touch with all kinds of audiences because I think everyone is looking for the truth. Everyone has a bit of the puzzle to put into the whole picture. And I don't want to limit myself to just a scientific or academic audience or just a spiritual audience or just a general public type of audience or or just an alternative science type of audience. I like reaching out to all kinds of people. That's great. I have a question for you, Michael. Suppose that the findings and discoveries that you've documented became complete public knowledge, also were integrated into academia. What would be different? Right now it's at the edge of everything, but suppose it was at the core of everything. How would it change life for all of us, for everybody to really get it? I think there would be major changes. Right now, the type of society and worldwide human civilization that we have is being determined by the sense of self that modern science gives us through the monopoly they have in the education system. And the sense of self that they give us is very materialistic. They tell us we are just robot chemical machines in competition with each other for survival. We are just evolved apes. We're, they give a very materialistic concept of the self, so much so that even people who believe in God will just 
pray to God to help us increase our material production and consumption. So that most people in the world today think that the main purpose of human existence is to produce and consume more and more material things. This is the, the nature of our world today. And it has resulted in some progress, but it's also resulted in, practically speaking, destroying the environment. Because we're producing and consuming too much, we are poisoning the air, poisoning the land, poisoning the water. And uh, because of this, these ideas that were robot chemical machines in competition with each other for survival, there, there are intense levels of conflict in the world, of exploitation. And, and there's an economic system and p people in, with this mood of competition for survival sometimes take unfair advantage of others in the system. That's why we have a financial crisis, because certain people took advantage of the economic system to get more than what was their fair share at the expense of other people, causing employment and a lot of unemployment and a lot of financial distress for a lot of people while they were enriching themselves uh, by unfair means through all kinds of schemes. And then we also see intense levels of conflict in the, in the world competing for control of scarce resources like oil and natural gas and things like that. It's Now, if the ideas that I'm talking about were more dominant, we would see a lot of changes because we would have a different concept of the self. We would understand we're not just machines made of matter. We are beings of pure consciousness, all coming from the same source. There's a source of all conscious beings. We're all coming from that same source. Therefore, we're all related to each other, and we're part of the same spiritual family, and we're meant to be cooperating with each other and producing our material necessities of life in the most simple, natural, and efficient way possible. If we did that, that would solve a lot of the problems that we're facing in the world today. It would bring our consumption of the Earth's material resources down to sustainable levels that don't degrade the environment with all the problems that creates. Would we have a spiritual renaissance, if you will, if this were core knowledge? Yes, and we would also see the intense levels of conflict begin to decrease in the world today, because now we see ourselves as other for survival instead of cooperating with each other, understanding that we're all coming from the same source, that we're all related to each other. So we, we see intense levels of competition in the world among individuals, among classes, among nations, among religions. That's all based on this competition model. Uh, that, you know, competition for survival, you know, that's taught by the Darwinian theory of evolution. So uh, I think we would see the levels of conflict in the world decrease, the level of environmental degradation decrease. We would also see the level of financial exploitation decrease. We would see less financial crises as people 
learn to be satisfied with their fair share of the Earth's resources. Gandhi once said, there's enough on Earth for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed. So if we had the idea that we're beings of pure consciousness and we started developing the resource of consciousness, then this would see a decrease in the levels of anger and greed that are now poisoning human society all over all over the world. We see the signs of it everywhere. So yes, there would be major changes. But for example, by finding out that humans have been here for millions of years, what does that translate as? That fundamental new discovery to get that? Well, what that means is we need new theories of human origins. It's not simply the fact that we've you know, been here for millions of years that is going to change our way of life. But what that fact that human beings have been here for millions of years does, the evidence for that, it contradicts the current theories of human origins, and it means we need new theories of human origins. And if human beings have been here since the beginning, that means they they had to have been put here. They didn't evolve because they've been here since the beginning. That means there had to have been some intelligence that put them here. It means that we're more than just accidents of evolution. It means we're more than just robot chemical machines in competition with each other for survival. <clears throat> for me, <clears throat> the human body or any other body is a vehicle for a soul. It's a vehicle for a conscious self. And this vehicle has a purpose. The purpose is to return the conscious self to its original home, which is the world of pure consciousness, which is at the highest level of the cosmos. Uh, we haven't evolved up from matter. We've devolved or come down from pure consciousness or spirit. And the main purpose of human life is to return to that level of pure consciousness. And the great wisdom traditions of the world all have different systems of meditation and yoga and contemplation and prayer that are meant to help us do that, restore consciousness to its original pure state, which is eternal, full of knowledge, and full of pleasure. That is our natural condition. That's why we feel uncomfortable on this level of reality, because we're not eternal, we find ourselves subject to uh, death and disease, and uh, we don't feel full of knowledge. We feel that there's knowledge that's being hidden from us. We don't know everything we need to know, and we also don't feel unmixed pleasure. But these things, the reason why we feel uncomfortable in a world where there is death, where there is suffering, where there is ignorance, is because by nature, we are eternal. By nature, we are full of knowledge. By nature, we are full of pleasure. And that's why we feel uncomfortable in the situation in which we find ourselves now. But our current education system doesn't give any solution to this problem. It just drives us deeper into death, ignorance, and suffering. Can you talk a little bit about the cave site in South Africa, which you call the Cradle of Lies, the Sturkfontein Cave? 
Yes. Uh, the Sterkfontein Caves are an archaeological site in South Africa. It's a place where scientists have discovered bones of an ape-man called Australopithecus, who they believe lived about three or four million years ago in Africa. And they consider this little ape-man to be our human ancestor. They believe that uh, we came, we modern human beings, came from this little three, three-and-a-half-foot-tall ape-man called Australopithecus that lived in Africa three or four million years ago. And the Sterkfontein Caves are one of the main places where the fossils of this ape-man were found. And therefore, they call this place the Cradle of Humanity uh, because it's the place of our distant ancestors. That's what they would say. It's actually a United Nations World Heritage Site. But I don't believe that's true. It's just a propaganda effort to support the Darwinian theory of evolution. And that's why I call it a cradle of lies, not the cradle of humanity, because I think it's a lie that human beings evolved from apes or ape men. We didn't evolve from Australopithecus. Human beings have always been present on Earth, and there's evidence to show that. You know, for example, elsewhere in Africa, there are fully modern human footprints that have been found in layers of rock almost four million years old. These are the footprints discovered by Mary Leakey at a place called Le Toli in the country of Tanzania. And in her original report published in National Geographic magazine, she said these footprints are indistinguishable from modern human footprints, and they're found in layers of rock 3,700,000 years old, the same age as our so-called ancestor, Australopithecus, who didn't have feet like a modern human being. This creature had feet like a chimpanzee. Plus, you've got human skeletons that are three or four million years old, such as the human skeletons that were found by the Italian geologist Giuseppe Ragazzoni at a place called Castanedolo in northern Italy. He found these anatomically modern human skeletons in layers of rock between three and four million years old, the same age as the Sterkfontein cave discoveries of Australopithecus. So I think it's a lie that Sterkfontein is the cradle of humanity. I don't think it should be presented that way. For me, it's a cradle of lies. I thought it was very interesting to note that the Rockefellers were heavily involved in funding and then not funding archaeology. Yes, this happened specifically in China. The Rockefeller Foundation was very interested in promoting materialistic view of science because they wanted to understand human nature so that they would be able to control it. That's one reason why they were engaged in this ape-man research, because they thought, okay, if human beings came from apes, we should try to understand that, and uh, that will help us in our attempts to control human beings in society today for our purposes. So the Rockefeller Foundation was involved in funding the Beijing Man discoveries that were made in the 1920s. And 
these uh, discoveries were involved finding bones of a fossil ape man called Homo erectus near Beijing, China, in the Shukatin Mountains. And they funded this research very heavily as part, ultimately, of a program to understand and control human nature. Of course, it's based on a completely wrong idea that we evolve from the apes. That really isn't true. And we ha- actually have another purpose. So they treat us on the, on the basis of, of their understanding of where we came from. Scientists treat us in a particular way, like we're just some evolved ape, we're just another kind of animal, we're just purely material beings, and we should just keep our mouths shut, work hard, produce and consume more and more material things. That's their, their view of human civilization. But I'm proposing something else. We didn't evolve from apes. We are, we're fallen angels, really, in the sense that we're beings of pure consciousness, originally from some higher level of the cosmos. Now we've come down to this level of matter, but we need to go back to our original position. That's, that's my position. I think there should be foundations that support that, rather than foundations that support the idea that Yes, we're just evolved apes. We're just chemical machines in competition with each other for survival. Don't you ever get frustrated? No, I don't, uh, because I understand that it would be nice to be living at a time when my ideas were the dominant ideas. Uh, That would certainly be nice, but I understand that's not always the position. And I'm happy with the position I'm in. I'm, you could say, a, a... well, like Columbo, to whom you compared me, he had a sense of humor. <laughs> Indeed. He, he seems he never got really frustrated, uh, no matter what attempts were made to obstruct his investigations. He always kept his sense of humor. He kept a sense of humor, but he never let up. And he never let up either. <laughs> That's right. So, I'm, I'm, so maybe it's an apt comparison. I'm the same way. I keep my sense of humor, and I don't give up. And one of the things that inspires me is the reactions that I get from people all over the world who appreciate what I'm doing and encourage me to keep on going. One of the things that keeps me going is the letters that that I get from archaeology students who tell me that my work has really opened their eyes to new possibilities. And sometimes I even learn some interesting things from archaeology students. There was one archaeology student who wrote to me and he said he was out on an excavation with his professor, and he just happened to ask his professor, well, what if human beings have been here for longer than we think possible? And his professor told him, I've got a book you should read. And his professor brought out his own personal copy of my book, Forbidden Archaeology, and gave it to the student. That's awesome. And he read it. So it's things like that that kind of keep me going to know that there's a professor who's secretly reading my book and when he finds a student who might be interested and he gives it. You know, I always have been fascinated with the process by which ideas come from being underground to being mainstream. Uh, You know, this happens in all kinds of fields. It may happen in fashion, for example. There may be some fashion designer who just sees some kids in Paris dressing in a certain way and 
then it then it becomes mainstream. So a lot of times things happen like that. Things circulate a little bit underground on the fringes, but then eventually they become mainstream. So, of course, if my ideas did become mainstream, I would not behave like those who are in the currently dominant position where they try to exclude all the alternative ideas. For example, if my ideas about the origin of the human species were dominant in the world of science, then in the textbooks, if there were still some scientists who supported the Darwinian theory of evolution, I would say, okay, give them some pages, some pages in the textbooks to explain their ideas. Sure, uh, I wouldn't be behaving as they are now, uh, excluding all the alternative ideas from the education system. Can you explain to us who the Hobbit is that some archaeologists talk about and why the Hobbit is relevant? Uh, that has to do with some discoveries that were made on Flores Island in Indonesia. There, some archaeologists found the bones of a little ape-man-like creature. And it's it's interesting. If they just said, hey, you know, we found some little bones of some uh, little creature and just gave a Latin species name for it, it wouldn't get any headlines. It wouldn't attract any public attention. So uh, scientists have become good at publicity. You know, they know that the best way to get attention for any uh, fossil ape-man discovery that they make is to give it some kind of name that will attract the public's attention. Uh, for example, the first discovery of Australopithecus that was made by Donald Johansson in Ethiopia in the 1970s, uh, it wouldn't have attracted any public attention, really, except that he called it Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yes, we were listening to the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and therefore when we found this little fossil, Australopithecus... They marketed it, basically. Yeah, they marketed it. So, yeah, it's the same with this other discovery. Because of the popularity of the movie, Lord of the Rings, and all of that, that you know, that was uh, about the same time as this discovery. And the scientists just decided to call it, you know, the Hobbit. So it's just part of the whole marketing apparatus that goes into archaeology and many fields of science. It's like a good marketing technique. And uh, this little ape man, or some some scientists think it was uh, a a pygmy human being with a disease that malformed its bones. So there's a big debate going on about that. Uh, it's uh, This creature is about 30,000 years old, according to the archaeologists, but it was found in a place where they had also discovered stone tools about 800,000 years old. That, is, that in, in itself is kind of astonishing because most archaeologists have a hard time accepting that human beings capable of making those tools existed 800,000 years ago in Indonesia. So they proposed, well, it must have been 
some ape man who made those stone tools. And the ape man that existed at that time in that part of the world was called Homo erectus. It was existing about 800,000 years ago. And then it became a problem to explain how that ape man got to Flores Island. So they proposed, well, he made a boat and sailed there. But nobody ever thought these ape men were intelligent enough to do that. But they were just making this up, I believe, in order to explain the stone tools on Flores Island. But I think there's another explanation, because there is evidence that there were human beings like us, intelligent human beings just like us, who were present in Southeast Asia 800,000 years ago. And I would say it was them who made the sea crossing to Flores Island and left the stone tools there. And as far as this little hobbit, I think that is probably a representative of some kind of Bigfoot creature, but I guess you have to call it Littlefoot because the creature is so small that was existing at that time in Indonesia. And there are reports even today of living ape men being seen in that part of the world, in Sumatra and Borneo and places like that. The, the, the natives call these creatures Sadapas. So I think what you've got there, what that hobbit is, it's, it's not a human ancestor. It's just uh, one of these Sasquatch-type creatures that exist in various parts of the world. And human beings like us were also there in ancient times. Just like today, we're coexisting with different kinds of apes and monkeys and things like that on this planet. In the past, we were also coexisting with them. How do you keep your sense of poise and not get into the anger when this stuff is suppressed? Is it the meditation that you do? Well, yes. My I look at my work as part of my yoga, part of my meditation, and one of the principles of yoga and meditation is to control the mind, be even-minded about things. So I really try to do that, uh, to, to be equal in honor or dishonor, victory or defeat. This is one of the principles. And you, you, you can also see this in, in modern sports. You know, there's some athletes who are good sports, you know, whether they, they're on the winning or losing side, they maintain their equanimity. And I think uh, people have a lot more respect for them than the ones who get overly confident when they win or overly depressed when they lose or angry or something like that. How long a day do you meditate? In terms of my formal meditation, which is meditation on the Hare Krishna mantra, I do that about two hours a day. But I look. I try wow, that's med- great. I try to be meditating all day long, in the sense that uh, in the system of yoga that I practice, your work becomes part of your yoga, your meditation. If it's done in devotion for a spiritual purpose, then your writing, your music, your art, your whatever it is you do, can become a meditation a yoga. That's how I try to keep my mental state. 
That's great. I would imagine that's a huge support to your mission and your calling. Yes, it does. It gives a, a lot of inner satisfaction. It also gives me a long-term perspective and helps me relate to other people. I'm so delighted and so appreciative of what you're doing. And I know that there will be a time as you stay healthy and we both stay healthy, perhaps in the next 25 years, the world will get it or before. I think things are definitely moving in that direction. Most people already accept the kinds of things I'm talking about. and There are even many scientists who do, although sometimes they have to keep quiet about it. So I don't think that the current group that's now dominating the education systems and the government is going to be able to do that for, for too much longer. It's just not a very stable situation for them. I have one last question for you, and it really surprised me in the book, The Forbidden Archaeologist. It was like a sentence or two. You said that Jesus was in Glastonbury with Mary Magdalene and that he studied Druidic mysteries. How did you know that and where did you find that? Well, I was reporting what I heard from the people in Glastonbury. It's not necessarily that I accept that myself, but okay. I was in Glastonbury to speak at a crop circle conference, and I was listening to the people there who were knowledgeable about the place, and they were explaining its significance to me in terms of the ideas that they had about uh, Christ. Of course, there are a lot of different areas where there's hidden histories. I mean, I've tended to focus on the archaeological evidence for extreme human antiquity, and there are other researchers in the alternative history field who've gotten into the Grail mysteries and the Jesus mysteries and things like that. It's not my main field. Right. Okay. But I just wanted to ask you about that. I just thought yeah, that would be neat to talk to them. <laughs> but there are a lot of researchers who've gone into this who feel that that's the story, that uh, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and that she and her child went to England at some point. There's a whole history about that that's told by researchers into the Grail Mysteries and Jesus Mysteries there in England that I became familiar with when I was in Glastonbury. Fascinating. You have a very interesting life of travel and discovery and research and writing. I feel you have a very blessed life. Well, thank you. I, I, I look at it like that. Of course, it's been something I've been doing all my life. As I said, I was brought up in a family that was always traveling. I was always being exposed to new ideas. So it's, it's, it, it must be my destiny to do this sort of thing. I noticed in a PR release about your work, was it Louis Leakey who put you down, who wrote something terrible about you? Richard Leakey. Richard Leakey. Son. I could not believe what he said about you. Can you tell the audience? Well, it was typical of what I would call the fundamentalist Darwinist reaction to my work. He said, your your book is full of nonsense. I can't remember his exact He word. said rubbish or something yeah, like that. Just of, Your book is rubbish. It wouldn't be taken seriously by anyone but a fool or something like that. So we actually put that on the cover of the book and it actually got a lot of attention and sold a lot of copies. So That was really, really shocking. Because <laughs> I think uh, there, there are various reactions. There are positive and negative yes. reactions. And 
on uh, the cover of one of my books, we put those positive and negative uh, reactions, including the statement by Richard Leakey, and it actually did help sell a lot of books. So I think the more mean spirited the reaction, the more you got the tiger by the tail. There's something that's being touched there that's ringing true. Yeah, it touches a nerve, definitely, especially among this group that I call the fundamentalist Darwinist. It's really sometimes extraordinary to see you know, the links that they'll go to to try to discredit something when really they're just discrediting themselves. I think what Richard Leakey said says more about him than it says about me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there anything else you'd like to say today? Well, I would just like people to think uh, very seriously about these things. Uh, I respect intellectual freedom, however. I respect people's right to have whatever opinion they want of me, but I, I would just thank everybody for taking the time to listen, and if what I've said makes sense to anybody out there, I hope they'll pursue it by having a look at some of my books, and I just thank them for listening. Michael, it was a pleasure having you on today. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, listening to, and learning from Michael Cremo. He is the author of Human Devolution, Forbidden Archaeology, The Hidden History of the Human Race, and the new book out, The Forbidden Archaeologist. I'd like to read what Graham Hancock, author of Fingerprints of the Gods, and many wonderful books said about you as we close today. He says... I believe this book to be one of the landmark intellectual achievements of the late 20th century. It will take more conservative scholars a long while, probably many years, to come to terms with the revelation it contains. It is my great honor to be talking with the Colombo of archaeology. Thank you so much, Michael Cremo. Thank you, Kim.